Welcome to season two of the Shopstool podcast, a podcast for woodworkers and the maker community in general. With Joey Chalk from King Post Timberworks, Brian Cush from Sawdust Bureau, and Robin Lewis from Robin Lewis Makes. Hi everyone, I hope you're all very well. This is episode 28, season two of the Shopstool podcast. As always, I want to start by introducing my two co-hosts. Joey, how are you? Yeah, very good, Robin. How are you going? Not too bad, thanks. And Brian, how are you? I'm all right, Robin. I'm good. Yeah. That's good. And my name is Robin Lewis. Welcome to the show, everyone. Now, tonight's guest is a very special one, all the way from Tasmania, even though she's known pretty much all across Australia. She's been a furniture maker officially since 1996 and has racked up a fair few awards in that time. I'm pretty sure we're going to get into that tonight. So please welcome to the show, Laura McClusker. Thanks for being here. How are you tonight? I'm very well, thank you. How are you guys doing? Yeah, I'm very well. I'm very well, thank you. So what we've done in the past with the show is we've started with a bit of a who you are and where you come from. But tonight we're going to try something a little bit different. So I want to paint a picture for you. It's Monday morning, you come into work, you open your door, and the first thing you notice is that the lock has been busted off, off your workshop. So you know someone's broken in. You walk into your shop, and you're obviously worried someone's gonna have stolen something. So you look around your shop, and the only thing that's missing is the one tool that you hate the most. <laughs> so deep down inside you're as happy as anything because insurance is going to pay out and you're going to replace it with something that you would rather have what would that tool be and what would you replace it with do you think <laughs> oh man that's like asking me which one of my kids are. <laughs> <laughs> oh oh um Look, I was a bit spoilt when I started off and I, I was in a share workshop which had the most amazing old Wadkin thicknesser. It was like a 1930. In fact, the table saw was a beautiful old Wadkin table saw as well. And it had been reconditioned by one of our workmates who was a, who had trained as a, in, with British aerospace. So it was unbelievable. So I guess, you know, my Carvatec, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which has had a bit of a beating you know she's she's done well for me and i hate to i'd hate to sort of you know um you know nominate her but that would probably be it like if i could if i could swap her up for a wadkin thickness that like mm. we used to have that would be pretty nice yeah that's a good choice <laughs> 1930s wow yeah it was it's- so beautiful cast iron oh. beautiful green all been repainted moved just it's just a dream yeah anyway yeah Mm, I'll I'll tell you why I decided to start with that question. I'm having endless trouble with my jointer, and I just about threw it out the shop. Well, I probably wouldn't be able to, but I wanted to throw it out the shop today because I'm so sick and tired of that. And I remember an episode not too long ago where Joey and uh, Brian, I think you might have been on the show, you were saying how jointers were so difficult to set up. (laughs) And I said, no, 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 it's easy. Mine just worked out of the box. And I tried to to recently set it up, and I think that's what I've done wrong. Anyway... Um, so, Laura, thanks very much for being on the show. Um, yeah, tell us a bit about what you do. Uh, well, I do, uh, I do whatever. I do, I do lots of stuff. I, <laughs> I find it hard to say what I do because right now I'm doing, I'm doing some kitchens and bathroom fit-outs and I'm doing some um, – uh, oh, um, 
I've got so much stuff on at the moment I can't even recall <laughs> what it is. So there's not one thing that I do. I, I do whatever comes across my plate. I've been really lucky in the last few years to have some really exciting and interesting projects. Um, at the moment with COVID, I was expecting everything to go get a bit quiet. We'd actually coincidentally booked in finishing off some renovations at home. So I was expecting to be at home put, building a deck and um, you know converting under the house into a little studio. Uh, but it hasn't really quietened down here. We're really busy. Um, you know, the building industry seems to be going crazy. It's, I don't know if it's a Tasmanian thing or if it's, uh, I don't know if everybody's just a bit toey and they're all trying to get their jobs finished before, you know, supplies run yeah. out. But we've, <laughs> we've never been busier. The, the best thing is that deadlines don't seem to matter anymore and everybody's being really reasonable, which is great. Mm. We're definitely, we're finding the same thing at our end. Yeah. Like we were chatting about it last week. It's, yeah, deadlines are a thing of the past. Yeah, and that's great. I mean, down yeah. here in Tasmania specifically, a lot of the work we've been doing in the last few years has been with um, uh, tourism hospitality venues and event-based stuff. Mm-hmm. And obviously the deadlines with that sort of thing is really is really key. But now that's, you know, it's all up in the air. We've still got a lot of the work that's been had been booked in, and so we're just doing it, getting it ready, but they're not expecting to really to have guests and tourists until maybe October, even then. Who knows? Can you talk us through some of the tourism and hospitality things that you've done down there? Well, one one that I'm actually doing some filming for next week is a there's a really interesting um, old wood chip mill down here at Triabana. It was called the Spring Bay Wood Chip Mill, and for however many years they would you know take all of these old growth Tasmanian uh, trees and turn them into wood chips and and send them off to Japan or wherever to make paper. And obviously, it was a huge environmental and a, a, a very big environmentally um, problematic concept but it's also it's industry and it's employment and it's an environment and it's this Tasmanian sort of a really real sort of you know a real hot spot of Tasmanian politics um anyway it was bought recently well I don't know how long ago five years ago by an environmental philanthropist and he's turning it into an eco-tourist event space venue he's done a whole lot they've done a lot of yeah um you know bush regeneration, planting vegetable gardens, um, training and employing a lot of the local people to work there and having it as this incredible space. But using the actual the old industry and the old buildings, not not demolishing them and rebuilding them, but repurposing them and keeping all of the beautiful texture and and the machines and the it's just it's such an exciting place. So so that's what I'm working on at the moment. Uh, hopefully they're putting together a bit of a video explaining some of this stuff next week and um you know things like this they've got the time now to do it so that'll be all getting together in time for when they open up again i think Hmm. you you mentioned you're filming um is that personally or is is someone else getting involved they're sending someone down and they're filming the you know the architect and me and the guy who's doing the the gut the bush regeneration and a bunch of the other people who worked on the project i mean it's a huge project so there be i think they're interviewing about five or six people and over two days and going to edit it all together hopefully it'll be a nice a nice little you know yeah. bit of content the, the reason i the reason i ask is just in the little bit of research that i did i noticed there's quite a few videos of you out there right so it seems like that's quite a quite a big part of your history is is that something that you've purposefully got involved in or is it just so happened it's just happened um i think that when you're uh when you have a point of difference which is when there's a really obvious point of difference people you know you you become a go-to person for that sort of stuff 
Uh, I think that's one of the benefits of being female in a male-dominated industry when I started 20 years ago. Uh, it's not that unusual these days to be a woman furniture maker, but I think one of the first ones that you may, you may have found was 17 years ago because I was actually pregnant with my son in in the video. You can't really see it because they've edited it out. <laughs> the, filming, the filming stretched over a three-month period. It was over in the height of summer in Sydney. And we had to stop filming because it was so hot in the workshop that it was, wasn't safe. There were aeroplanes going overhead, which was driving them nuts, so they had to stop. Anyway, they started filming when I was three months pregnant and obviously wasn't showing. And by the time they finished filming, I was six months pregnant and I was showing. But then they edited it all back together to make it look like, you know, later that afternoon she delivers the piece. <laughs> so it looked like not only was I a super efficient furniture maker, but I could yeah. gestate like that, you know. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. So, no, I haven't really sought that stuff out, but I think, I think once it's one of those things, you know, once you get in one thing, it's, it's a Google finds mm. you pretty quickly. Um, and then other people ask you to do things. And look, it's always, sometimes I, I, there have been times where I've thought, oh, I want to be a furniture maker, not someone who talks about furniture making. And often they want to ask me about, you know, tell us how to run a small business successfully. And you think to yourself, I'm not running a small business successfully. I'm spending time in front of the camera talking about, like, talking shit. I'm not, like, I really got <laughs> stuff to do. Like, this is crazy. But on the other hand, I think, well, it's important to, um, I mean, you know, I guess it's important to uh, promote yourself and I, d I don't actually know how much work I get out of, have, have got out of it in the past, but I do know that I get, I still get emails from, re you know, regional teachers and, and, and students around Australia saying that they should use that video to show in class and it's, you know, been hugely inspiring for the female mm. students and, you know, that sort of stuff. And I, I just awesome. recently did a piece, to, a little video for one of, for another teacher somewhere in country Victoria so that he could show his class talking about it. And that sort of stuff does seem to be important for me, you know, to be, um, you know, to just, if, you know, that's the thing. If you can't see it, you can't be it. So just yeah. trying to, you know, yeah, just show girls that it's not, you know, it's not just for the boys. We get to have a go yeah. too. That's super important. No, I, I really admire that actually going out of your way to, um, just to put a video together. I mean, that seems a lot of people I think might just, turn the nose up at it because it's initially he was he wanted me to do a um answer you know he sent through some questions and could i just write some answers and to be honest by the time if you asked me to sit down in front of a computer and write yeah. answers to questions it would take me hours yeah. but you know with covid i said oh look i could do a zoom meeting and then he was like oh all the kids are at home i said look i'll just do a piece of camera it was probably a bit shit you know the production days weren't very good but, you know whatever <laughs> deadlines have gone and qualities are gone <laughs> like who cares yeah. <laughs> yeah that's interesting so i briefly um went through your website. I never like to um, read too much about our guests because I find it more inter interesting just to like find out about everything from the, from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Um, but so you, on your website, you said that you, you essentially said your list of things you make is pretty much anything. And, and like just before you described, you're making kitchens, you do furniture. And I find, I think we're pretty probably really similar in the way the businesses, our businesses work. I, I do the same thing. We will make anything you want as long as it's mostly out of wood. Um, and I, and I kind of marketed that way on my website, but I find people often um, don't know if, if 
they should ask if I can make this or because because it's not defined there's no not one part of my website is a definition of what I make some people they tend to think uh, you should just be a, a table maker or a whatever a bookcase maker and they don't know um, so do you ever find your do you find that where people are a bit confused about the, the fact that you can make anything most of my, most of the work I get is through word of mouth and so people talk about what I've done and, and, and they'll come in and, you know, they'll come in and have a chat. And there's, you know, whenever they come in here, there's so many different things on the go that, you know, I'll, they'll pick it up quite quick that I do all sorts of things. I've never really had a, I, I mean, I quite like doing a lot of different things because there have been times in the past where I've, I've made batch products and, you know, it's, it's, um, it's really good for getting your skills up, but after a while it can get a bit tiresome and a bit, a bit dull. Um, although I do sometimes still like going back to some repetitive work just for like a, a Zen moment of productive yoga, I call it. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I think it's actually really good to keep the skills up when you've got a diversity of, of things that you do. And, um, and I find it really interesting. So I, I do remember when I was at, at, when I was training at, at, at school, not at high school, when I was doing my training, um, there was a the real snobbery around sheet material and, and kitchens and, you know, making boxes and white boxes. And um, I was just so excited to get on machines and to get my hands dirty and to get stuck in that I didn't really – the whole snobbery thing didn't really – it didn't really make sense to me because, you know, if I learned how to make really good – got really good at making kitchens well then clearly I was going to be really good at making you know other things too so um the idea that there's this sort of hierarchy of quality but solid timber is is you know the up the top and sheet materials down the bottom it doesn't really make sense to me I mean you've I've seen some shit solid furniture out solid timber furniture out there are just appalling and I've seen the most beautiful you know plywood I mean as we all have I'm sure we know I'm I'm singing to preaching to the choir here, but um, yeah. Anyway, I don't even know. Was that the question you asked? Probably not. Yeah, it's <laughs> fine. It's, yeah, it's interesting um, to hear that. I, I agree that um, I think there's a tendency that, and I, I find it here. I'm in Auckland, um, and so our market. I find that people want solid solid timber furniture. Like some people will. As soon as you mentioned that, you know, making this out of a veneered plywood is probably going to be the best option because of what you want, um, and that's just they're just so opposed to it because it's not solid timber, and that that means it's quality, but the budget wouldn't allow for it, or would allow for some awful softwood to be used. And um, it's interesting that there's a perception that solid wood is better when, in actual fact, most of the time probably plywood. Just as just as good or better. Look, I mean, I I know that most not most of it, but a, a big proportion of my my job is educated is is helping people understand what it is I do and how how it works. And you know, I mean, everybody's pretty. I mean, I certainly haven't found very many people who are not open to learning about it and understanding it. And also, when they come into the workshop, I can show them pretty quick. You know, a piece of you know a, a piece of timber that's got some twist in it, or as, as cupped or bowed, or you know, a piece of plywood that's straight and true. It doesn't it doesn't take very much if you if you've got the time to educate people. Laura, I was going to ask you about the experience of relocating your website away from sort of inner Sydney to Hobart. Obviously, in Melbourne, there's a lot of makers that sort of move a couple of hours out, but the experience of relocating not only interstate but onto an island. 
Can you talk us through how that has affected your business and whether it's actually ended up being a real plus point and the drawbacks of, of being far away from a large population, but building better links through your sort of networks on, on the island? It was funny. When we moved down here, I was totally ready to pack up my work. I mean, I was ready for it to become more of a put it on the back burner, concentrate on, you know, the kids were young. Uh, I went when my son was born. I went um, when he was sort of up until the age of three. I went back to university because I thought I should be (laughs) – I can hear myself saying this. This sounds pathological. (laughs) But I thought I should be, you know, be doing something useful and keep myself busy. (laughs) So I went back to uni and I did my education degree while Jim was little. So that when he started at school, I was ready to go and I did a bit of teaching and I did sort of um, design technology teaching and woodwork and furniture making. And I was totally ready to do my own stuff on the side and be and, and be a teacher. Um, but the work came in, some opportunities came in, and I just couldn't juggle the two. I found it really, really hard. I was terrible at being a part-time teacher, part-time woodworker, part-time mum, part-time wife. I was just – I was just – being pulled in every direction, felt like I wasn't doing any of it properly. Um, so I, I called it and I said, okay, well, now that the kids are at school and, you know, and everything's ready, I'll, I'll get stuck back into it. But I did – it makes it – it looks like I planned all this but and I was very clever and very strategic, but I wasn't. I was just very lucky. Um, Mona op- was opening up at about the same time as I was – as we moved down here and um, they put a call out for local furniture makers who might want to be, who might be interested in building furniture for for some of the accommodation pavilions. And um, because I'd come straight from Sydney, I was still had that, you know, the mindset of the big city where I was like, Oh shit, I better throw my hat in the ring. You know, I better get in there. You're thinking that there'd be, you know, I don't know, a hundred other people putting their hands up or 50 other people or anyway, there were three people. And one of them pulled out and the other one could only do one table. So I ended up with, I don't know, like five dining tables, have, you know, 16 bedsides, um, outdoor furniture. I mean, I, I can't remember. I just remember getting getting this huge job and just thinking, shit. <laughs> was it, that was your biggest commission at that stage, was it? That stage, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so th- at that point it was like, okay, well, I've got to give this, give this a crack. I mean, moving down to Hobart um, – was so that we could afford to buy a house. But the other side of the coin is, which makes sense, I guess, a whole lot of makers moving out of Melbourne, is that the overheads went down, I mean, considerably. I can't remember exactly what the numbers were, but my monthly rent in Sydney became my annual rent in Hobart. (laughs) Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So I could... I could, you know, I could cover the freight of shipping stuff back to Sydney for, yeah. for clients. So actually, freight's not, and freight actually hasn't been a big, a big deal. It cost me three hundred dollars to send a dining table from Hobart to anywhere on the eastern seaboard up to beyond Brisbane. Jeez, give me, give me that freight number. <laughs> and it would cost me three hundred bucks to get a table moved from from Surrey Hills in Sydney to to you know the North Shore. Wow, is is that going by boat? Uh, yeah. Well, you get. Uh, They'll pick it up and they drive it, get on the ferry, and then drive from Melbourne up the coast. Oh, okay. Wow. So it's not it's not like a particularly slow service or anything. No, no, no. Like you know, I mean, the the guy I've got goes once a month, but you know, even just normal handlers, they're going regularly. People are moving up and down all the time. So most of your as mo- are most of your pieces um, in Greater Australia rather than Tasmania. Uh, I reckon fifty fifty. 
Okay. We send, I mean, I, I prefer, I, I like working locally so that I, especially with fitted furniture, obviously, so that I can, you know, be sure if I've, you know, the install is that much easier. But we have, we did a cafe fit out in Melbourne um, and we did a huge, a, a full house fit out in Adelaide Hills a couple of years ago. So we have done it where we've packed up, you know, we've built, we, with the Adelaide Hills one, it was two container loads of furniture and that got shipped over. And then we all piled all the stuff, you know, all the tools in the ute and we drove over and, and did that one. Um, but it's pretty stressful and it's a big, it's a big deal when you've got kids and stuff, leaving the kids at home and, or getting, farming them out to friends and it's not ideal. I mean, it was good. I'm glad I did it, but you know, well, there's a lot of work locally. I'm really happy to do that. That's the thing from an out, from an outsider's point of view, looking into Tasmania and I know it gets built up in the media of this whole brand Tasmania is like an art and culture hub. I think Tasmanians really do appreciate a local product. Whereas many people in bigger cities in Melbourne and Sydney will look at the local product, they'll look at the imported product, and they'll look at the price difference, and they'll go with the imported product. Whereas from an outsider, I look at Tasmania and I, I see that they really respect the work that is done there by craftspeople, by artisans, by artists. And they buy into that? Yeah, but see, we get people from Sydney and Melbourne who are buying into the Tasmanian handmade, you know, brand Tasmania thing as well. But maybe that's a knock-on effect again. It's like they are buying into the the brand Tasmania, the design Tasmania sort of side of things. I don't know. But there not there an arts grant in Tasmania that um, allows you to borrow, to buy? It's like... Um, Zero percent, zero percent interest. Is that right? Okay, so one of the great, I mean, there, there are a lot of great things about Tasmania, but one of the things that is fantastic is that there's a state government uh, body called Arts Tasmania, and they f- have two fantastic schemes. One of them is called the Collect Scheme, which is a, a zero interest loan for Tasmanian artworks, and I'm that I'm defined as an artist. So people can come to me and buy a dining table and they, the government will basically give them interest-free credit to buy it. So they can buy, buy a dining table from me and pay it off over a year for 0% interest. So it's equivalent, you know, I mean, it's, it means that I can compete with Harvey Norman. You know, I can give you 12 months interest-free credit. So it actually, you know, and when a lot of the big places have a four- to six-week lead time, if I can compete with the lead time and credit – and it's locally made out of local timber, and they get to come and have a look at it. I've had clients who've come in here and they want to sand and make it with me. So there's a whole, it's a whole different thing. But the other thing that Arts Tasmania do, which is even as, I mean, it's fantastic as well, is that they give zero, no, low interest loans to make it. So I, I can take out a $25,000 loan at 1% for 10 years to buy a new table saw. So Arts Tasmania <laughs> really helps their artists. So it's a good place to be. And the, and the loans, just it sounds like I'm working for the government, but I'm not. The Arts Tasmania <laughs> loans for arts businesses, that covers musicians and it covers, you know, uh, furniture makers and, you know, ceramicists and dancers. You know, um, you can I, – I was on I, – I, for a while I was on the, the board of Arts Tasmania and I was helping assess some of these grants. And, you know, we were giving grants out to people for $150,000 to buy a, a cello for the Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra. I mean, amazing stuff, you know. So the government is really supportive of their artists and um, – and arts businesses, and it's yeah, it's really it's a really great place to be an artist, actually. 
How much of that do you put down to the whole Mona effect? Like, is it has it changed? In the last decade, or was it sort of slowly no, moving towards No, Arts Tasmania it? and the, 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 those sorts of initiatives, the Tasmanian Arts Advisory Board is 40 years old, so that was established around the time that the Australia Council was. So they've, they've been pretty, um, uh, you know, forward-thinking in and around the arts for a long time. The, the fact that there's a Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra and has been for, I don't know how long that's been going on, it's got to be, you know, 30 years as well. I mean, Hobart, Tasmania, I don't know how, what the population is, but it's tiny. We've got a symphony orchestra, a museum, Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery in Hobart and another Museum and Art Gallery in Launceston. I mean, Mona's great. It's fantastic, but it's really only been here for quite a short amount of time. Um, so it's not and, – and a lot of amazing stuff has happened because of Mona, but it's, it was an interesting place sort of creatively before that as well. I've got a, a very good friend of mine who lives down there and it's just got this – warm and fuzziness about it from a art and culture perspective um, i'm up in north queensland in um, townsville which is very it's a very different different sort of <laughs> feel and vibe yeah um, but you get yeah. to wear a t-shirt 365 days a year i've got my i've got my beret on <laughs> i've got my jumper we my... were down at eight degrees this morning <laughs> and i reckon the city just came came to a standstill that's all you heard on the radio was people oh, talking about the weather. Near river robin <laughs> everywhere we went it was weather 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 <laughs> yeah these old yeah. houses aren't made for eight degrees <laughs> no no yeah and what, what was the experience like of, of working at Mona? Were you dealing with the architects, the interior designers, or or David Walsh, or who was your... Yeah, all, all, and, uh, all and everyone. So when I first started working there, I was working with um, the interior architect from Fender Katsalides, and um, she was amazing, and we're still good friends, and we still work together on, on little jobs. Um but then I, I met David and I've done some, I made some pieces for David. And then, um, in the lead up to various sort of life events for David, his birthday parties and his wedding and other events, we made some pretty outrageous it, sort of tables and installations for their, <laughs> their bits and pieces. We still get repurposed and reused, you know, over and over and over again and, and reimagined. And so that's, that's always a crazy thing when they, when something like that's happening. From memory, did you do a super long dining table? Was that you? Like 60 meters long down in the void yes. and it all had to come down, get in there through goods lifts. And it was, it was, um, you know, it had lighting, it had plumbing, it had glass, the glass table bases and it all had to be obviously, you know, structurally sound because I think at one point there was a, a an opera singer, walking down the length of it singing an aria you know there was there were all sorts of amazing things happening yeah. yeah to anybody who's to anybody who's listening who doesn't know who david walsh is it's maybe worth just to google and watch some youtube <laughs> interviews or something yeah he's no, a bit of a character yeah it, it, it was pretty wild some of the some of the parties that they have down there um and it's such an incredible but i mean that sort of stuff it's not so much furniture making as you know as, as um like theater you know it's it's a whole different it's a whole different thing. The budget is a different thing. The timeline's a different thing. The materials they use. But there's a there's a huge, um, you know, Mona has a there's a there's a whole crew at Mona that helped me. It's not me that does it. It's it's me that gets pulled in to to do some part of it. But oh my god, I couldn't have done it without all the guys out there. Laura, have you got a any standout piece of furniture which you have made and and really kind of stood back and thought that is awesome i'm proud of myself uh it's funny actually today we were we're putting together the design tasmania is putting together like a, a 
a, a booth or a, for part of Denfair this year. It's all going online, and they uh, it was all it's all a bit rushed, and they called up last week or I think it was supposed to be in October, but now it's been brought forward. Anyway, they called us up last week and said, have you, got any, have you got any stuff? We need some stuff, quick, quick, by Friday. And so we had to phone around some different clients and ask to borrow pieces back. Um, I delivered a piece on Friday and I had to take it back on the following Wednesday. So my clients are very friendly and very kind. Um, but I also pulled out a whole lot of pieces from the, from home. And one of them is a screen, which I've which I've basically I've rolled up and sent up with it. Anyway, they phoned me up today and they said, can you give us some information about the screen? And I realised I made it – the first one I made was 20 years ago, and I've been made, making it consistently for 20 years. I mean, not mm. in mass production because it would drive me nuts. But, yeah. you know, every year one or two goes out there. One of them's gone to, you know, as far as Luxembourg. I've sold them all around Australia, and I've got one at home. And I really, really like it. I still like it 20 years later, and I see it every day. So That's the one on your portfolio? Probably, yeah. The, the the wavy one, so the curves. Yeah, barcode screen. Do you make them? Do you make them any differently now? Like, do you, have you changed any of the manufacturing process? You got better, got quicker. Um, but no, not really. And they've really held up quite well for something that's got a moving component and that it's under tension, and that you you know you roll it up to move it and you roll it up to store it, uh, and you can it's got a you know the footprint changes depending on what you need it. The one that I've got at home, I've had for fifteen years, and it's holding up really well. So I'm actually quite relieved because you know it's the sort of thing that you i don't know if you guys do that but you sort of wake up in the middle of the night you think oh god one day that's gonna go and i'm gonna have to i'm gonna get a phone call and you think oh but no and you think and then the worst part is you try and work out how you're gonna fix it without pulling everything completely to bits and yeah and you know that's one of the things about making hand making furniture for people is that whether you like it or not they do have lifetime guarantees because you know people know where you are and they'll come and you know come and ask for a hand if something happens to it. So it sounded like you were about to say, and they'll come for you. Which talking to Joey about some of his clients, that's uh, that sounds pretty true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I went back into the into the back episodes. I didn't get to the bottom of that one, but I did start. I, I saw some references to it. I was saying, oh, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that one. Yeah. Oh no, I seem to be the only one who gets terrible, terrible. It's either I do terrible, terrible work, or um, <laughs> I get terrible, terrible clients. Uh, you need to get your filter on early. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what everyone keeps saying. <laughs> I'm too nice, just, maybe. It's just Aucklanders, Joey. That's yeah, the main I issue, think I you're think. right. Yeah. I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. Yep. The majority of your work, Laura, you do in uh, in Tassie Oak, right? Yes, yes. Yep. Was that was that by choice, or was it just the fact that it's relatively affordable and it's on your doorstep? Um, when you were in Sydney, did you tend to make from it, or have you changed? When I was in Sydney, we'd go down to the Woodage to buy timber, and you know, we'd we'd pay a premium for Western Australian Jarrah or Queensland walnut or Vic, Vic Ash or, or Tasmanian oak. You know, not understanding that Vic Ash and Tasmanian oak were the same thing, but we, you know, I was really excited to buy Tasmanian oak. Um, Sydney blue gum didn't really do it for me because it was Sydney. I was just it was there was this kind of exotica about everything being from somewhere else. And when I came down here to Tasmania, Tasmanian oak was being and still is primarily sold as a building product. All of the furniture I make is F seventeen grade building product furniture. It's sold for for stud walls, for floorboards, um, you know, linings, and all of the you know the specialty timber, the blackwood, um, hue and pine celery top myrtle all of that sort of stuff all the local makers were, were predominantly making out of that and to be honest i found that stuff 
problematic for a number of reasons. Um, and I really love Tasmanian oak, and it is incredibly cheap, and it's a really beautiful timber to work with. And I think it's, it was really locally really undervalued, and I think I just had an outsider's appreciation of it. And so I just, I've, you know, and it's really easy to get, and the price is really stable. Um, I do, I do work out of some other timbers, mostly when people bring them to me. Like if they say that they've got, you know, there's this hewn pine that has been in the family for however long, or we've been carrying it around, and you know, can you make us a table out of it? I'll do that. But there are some real problems with making sure that the timber's been, you know, responsibly sourced in some of those specialty timbers, whereas the Tasmanian oak is, is you know, it's, it's got that accreditation, it's got that chain of custody, uh, so it just makes that sort of stuff a bit easier. Are they all massive trees or, or what? We can get, we get Vic Ash here and it's pretty cheap, but what astounds me is that every board I've ever seen is cordosorn, perfectly cordosorn, and it, so what happens to the rest of the, the trees or is everything you get cordosorn or? It's the way the tree grows. It's an incredible thing. To see. <laughs> <laughs> everything in the timber yard is cordosorn because it's all, it's all machined up for building grades. So it's all cordosorn. I, I pick through it and try and find stuff that's got a little bit of something going on. But um, I guess they, you know, they probably, they, they, chi- they chip the offcuts and, you know, and they, I think actually they they reconstitute some of the wood chips into pellets for fires and stuff. They do all sorts of stuff with it. Um, but yeah, no, it's really stable. Yeah, it's awesome stuff to work with. Um, I like it. Yeah. I'm working with some Tasmanian myrtle at the moment, which oh, it's the first time working with it. Um, I think Vic Ash is nice, but. Tasmanian myrtle takes it. <laughs> well, look, my favourite Tasmanian timber would have to be blackwood. The Tassie blackwood is very beautiful. Um, it, and it is all, look, it is all very beautiful. I just find, um, I think some of it is so strong and striking and some of it's, the colour is so demanding and, in, and, and I was going to say intimidating, but it's that I think it can be, sometimes it can be a little overwhelming, especially when, you know, you, you find people using myrtle and huon and blackwood all in the same piece or you know it can just be a bit much and sometimes this the, the actual shape and the form of the piece itself is secondary so i think somehow taz oak i don't know it 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 becomes about the piece rather than the timber if that if that makes sense um but also after working with it for quite a while i've i've been really i really enjoyed the the oxidization process and how you can oxidize it and get these beautiful black colors coming through it. So a lot of the times I'll actually tone some of the colors down by, you know, mixing it up with some black and, and, and natural colored timber in the same piece. That little short black table that you did, was that, that was ebonized oxidized? Yeah, so that's oxidized. So I just mix up vinegar and steel wool rusted yep. thing and, and, and oxidize it. Um, so a lot of my pieces have got, you know, I'll have black black legs and a, and a you know, natural coloured top or, you know, playing around with the black and the blonde together just to take some of it. Because I think the Taz Oak sometimes with oil finishes can be quite, can get quite yellow and, and you know, quite warm and somehow playing, putting the black next to it just tones it down a little bit. Sorry, just for the, the uneducated oxidizing so is that the actual timber that is oxidizing yeah so tasmanian oak is really high in tannin content um as vic ashes as well and when the tannin is um oxidized with basically i make make up a mixture of rust iron oxide so it's rusted rusted st- uh, steel wool and vinegar and you paint it on and it just comes up this beautiful blue black indigo color and it, as it's a chemical reaction rather than a dye or a pigment it's really stable 
Mm. And it's not it somehow it feels nice I think it feels nicer that you're not painting something or dyeing it. You're just triggering the actual inherent tannins in the timber. Um, in fact, you can flip it back the other way by painting it with oxalic acid and it goes blonde again. Does it fully go blonde? Does it? Does yeah, completely. Really? Yeah. So it's really, it's really cool. It's a nice little bit of chemistry, you know. It's not a false. It's not. You're not. Yeah, you're not staining timber. You've, yeah. That annoys me that because <laughs> I'm dealing with some uh, New Zealand cowrie at the moment, which has had been sitting around in a garage for 60 years and it's got some rust drops on it and the rust that some of the staining is almost full thickness all the way through the boards it's just been sitting there for years and years and years and um i drowned it in some oxalic acid to try and get rid of it and it just didn't uh, didn't move it a li- just any at all and i i was just pissed off because I, that should work <laughs> and it didn't bloody work so uh, it annoys me that you guys can like blacken that stuff and then just reverse it. That's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> just call it spalting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. That's a good point. Does that work with now? So you say it's about the tannin content. Does that work with any other timber, or does it just work really well with Vic Ash? It depends what how what the tannin content is in different timbers. So um, I've Vic Ash and Tazoka high in tannin. Blackwood seems pretty high. Celery tops, not so much. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, you'd have to check. You'd have to test on the different timbers that you've got around. Yeah. American hardwoods are good. Um, walnut, American white oak. Um, ash doesn't, I don't think. But you can tweak um, it a bit in that you can actually paint. You can, I've, you know, you can um, sometimes some boards in, in Taz Oak don't have high, as high a tannin content as other ones. And so you can actually paint them with a strong tea mixture, like, you know, tea. Which has high tannin in it, but I've recently found as well what is that you can go to a home brew store and buy powdered tannin, which is, you know, and you can mix that you can mix that into it and paint it on, and that makes it really black. What did you use, Brian, when you did the black um, pinch? I, I did steel steel wool vinegar and, yeah. and about four coats of tea. Right, tea, yeah. yeah. So the powdered tannin is really strong. Tiny little bags of it from the home brew store. I guess people put it in their red wine if they make want to wine with tannin paste. <laughs> Um, yeah, that makes sense. And it goes a little bit, goes an awfully long way. But it's also quite good because if you ever need to use that oxide finish on um, veneered board with, you know, Taz Oak veneers, the steaming process of cutting the veneer it just takes all the tannin out. So even though it's Taz Oak veneer, it doesn't go as black as you need it to. Right, okay. Like a secondhand tea bag. It just doesn't have the tannin in it. So the whole steaming veneering process just yeah i find the tea trick worked well but like when you're introducing multiple coats and it's obviously water-based it's lifting the grain all the time um yeah yeah, that that might be an interesting one to try out yeah as as i said a a tiny bit goes an awfully long way you just put a little bit in the in the vinegar mix and it just yeah stains it all up it's good um robin touched earlier on the fact that you have won lots of awards um can you just talk to people and tell them the importance of entering things this is like every time i'm talking to students or people that are starting woodworking um they are so nervous about putting their stuff up for awards and um you ran a program with adam markowitz who we've had on the show and nick rennie as part of wood dust festival where you offered a critique like a live critique of people's (laughs) 
Which, I was the kind one. I was the <laughs> you, yeah, you were the kind judge, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but for a lot of people who don't come from a design school background but come through from either picking it up themselves or through a carpentry um, background, it's a, it's a terrifying thing to do. But I just tell people that they have to put their work out there for not only potential clients to see but for their peers to see and to get some kind of feeling of, of where their stuff is and how they can improve. Um, so yeah, I'd just love to hear your, like, when was the first time you, you seriously thought about entering a piece? Was it pretty early on? Oh yeah, straight up. I, I realized that when I came out with my qualifications that my CV looked empty and I just was super pragmatic about it. I've always been very strategic and I thought, okay, I need to have an entry in my CV for at least one entry a year. It doesn't matter if it's an exhibition at the local cafe or whatever because no one's going to look at the CV and know. I just need to have an entry every single year. I need to have something published in a magazine every year. I need to have an exhibition every year. If I can have an, um, if I can win a prize, that's great. But even just entering the prize means that you can actually – often in those prizes you'll be um, part of the exhibition. Whether you win it or not, that's just the icing on the cake. So, no, I was just totally pragmatic. You know, I was it – wasn't, it wasn't about winning – uh, it wasn't about, you know, getting any critical feedback because, to be quite honest, I don't know how much critical feedback you get from those exhibitions. Everybody's so nice. <laughs> but <laughs> I do think that um, I've, a few times I've been at exhibitions and I've, I've had been asked to open them and I've actually sort of, at the, you know, at the talk when I'm opening it, I've asked people to have genuine conversations because it's, you know, otherwise people just stand around and talk about the weather. I think it's really valuable to give some, you know, Ask question, Ask people why they've done something some way. You don't have to give an opinion on it straight up, but you can just ask, you know, ask open-ended questions. Um, but, you know, look, I, I entered competitions from day one, not expecting to win. I was just hopeful to get into the shortlist, to get into the exhibition. Um, and, you know, and when you actually win something, that's just a bonus. That's just, you know, that's amazing. Um, yeah. So I would, I would totally encourage everybody to enter competitions, uh, but also exhibitions. Put your name in for exhibitions because oftentimes it's not about the prizes as much as just getting getting your stuff out there. And also don't be afraid to enter what, the same piece into different exhibitions and different competitions. You know, this, it, when I was starting out, I had this idea that if you entered it into one, that was it. You had to sort of, you know, put it <laughs> retire it. But you don't have to. And um, a lot of the time, people, curators of exhibitions, they're really hungry for, for, for pieces, you know. Um, so you, they're really grateful to have you submit your work oftentimes. So if you, were, if you were saying that there wasn't enough open dialogue at those kind of exhibitions and events, how did you find the role of being, uh, being the critique panel? Oh, look, I actually found it really lovely. It was a bit, super big loving. I mean, Adam's great and Nick was great. And it was good. Adam asked me to do it and he asked Nick to do it. And he's very clever about doing that. He knew that I'd be a soft touch and that Nick would be a hard ass. <laughs> that was, you know, and also that I came from a background of mating and, and, you know, and Nick comes from a background of designing. He's a, des he's a designer that makes and I'm a maker that designs. And it was a really good match, I think. Um, but, look, I'm really happy to have conversations with people about their work, and I think that certainly the people at Wooddust were very happy to – they seemed really grateful to be there and really happy for the feedback. Um, and they were all so lovely. I mean, it must have been quite nerve-wracking to put your stuff up in front of a bunch of – not so much in front of us, but in front of the, you know, the other 20 makers who are all standing around. That was probably a bit intimidating. But, you know, I mean, it's those things, you know – 
everyone's so nice. <laughs> I don't know. You always come away at the end of those things just being, I do anyway, thinking, God, people are nice. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about wood dust, what do you think the, the future is of, of wood dust? Is it, uh, do you think it's going to continue to grow and expand? Oh, look, I hope so. It's a bit hard to say at the moment with the state of the world and where everything's going. I mean, I can't – it's it's a bit weird to look back on it now and think about, you know, the lack of social distancing and, the you know, all of those people in that same – in that space and, or, you know – and, I, I mean, to be honest, I don't know how you teach woodwork in small classes with social distancing and all the rest of the stuff that we've got to, got to get our heads around now. So I'd love to think it was going to go keep on going, but it's a yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird time. Yeah. I don't know. I must say, I've, I've a lot of so I, I haven't been to a huge number of these sort of woodworking events, but the ones that I have, wood dust really struck me as being one of the more modern, and you know they're they're aimed at a very different demographic. Um, yeah, that's why I've just because I I went to the the first one only. I didn't go to the second one, but after the first one. It just seemed like this is this is where you want those sort of woodworking events to go. That's the direction. Well, to be honest, that's that's the first one I've been to for a long time. The ones that the, any any what it, I can't even remember the last time I went to one. It was probably Tim. I don't even remember what it was called, but it would have been in Darling Harbour and probably fifteen years ago. And it was no offence because three three of you got beards. It was just full of beardy men. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fifteen years ago. So the beardy men fifteen years ago, and at you know. It wasn't, it, yeah. It wasn't really. It was. It was a whole lot of people trying to sell um, lathes and um, slabs of timber. Yeah, and it was. Yeah. It was interesting, um, but it wasn't. It wasn't really. I mean, you, you know, you nip in, nip out. It was that sort of thing. But no, wood dust was was interesting. Every, you know, there were there were sessions that I was in with you, Brian and and Adam, that I was I was hoping to be able to peel away from to go and see the other sessions because there was other interesting stuff happening at the same time. And I had never that had never really happened at any of those other ones. So no, it was great, and I hope it does keep. It, it, there is a way that things like that can keep on going. The one thing um, I was actually talking to the, some of the organisers of Wood Dust the other day, and they are selling saying they've had one of their biggest um, quarters in terms of sales because of all the hobbyists. So I don't know whether like. Not that there's been a dwindling interest in woodwork, but it sort of it goes in waves. You know, one year it's fashionable, and the next year, you know, people have a whole load of unused tools in their shed. But it does feel as though this is building to a point where I think interest is gonna is gonna really grow through this year because people are stuck at home and they're stuck in their sheds. So, hopefully, twenty twenty one there'll be another wood dust. I hope so. I really yeah. hope so. But um, yeah, look, I I um. I think that this this whole COVID thing of lockdown thing has had given people an opportunity to stop and think about what's important, and also, you know, what local local stuff being important. You know, supporting local. So, you know, you were saying earlier, Brian, about how people in Melbourne, you know, are interested in if they're looking at furniture that it's, you're competing with furniture from, you know, presumably Milan and China and wherever else. I think that the emphasising the local this this COVID thing has really it certainly has down here in Tasmania. It's emphasised the local, and that's a good thing. Yeah. Cool. All right. I reckon we'll call it a show there. So to everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, if you did, please go ahead and give it a rating on iTunes. That really does help us out. The Shopstall podcast is available on iTunes and most other podcast apps. My name is Robert Lewis. Joey and Brian, thanks for hanging out today. Laura, again, thanks very much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Um, 
obviously one of our, our biggest stars. So it's always nice to, to bring on celebrities onto the show. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. So take care, everyone. We'll see you later. Cheers, guys. See ya. Bye.